Welcome to Givers, Doers, and Thinkers. I am your host, Jeremy Beer, and today we are talking with Garrett Johnson, co-founder and executive director of the Lincoln Network, about how technology is and isn't helping advance American freedom and community. Let's go. Givers, Doers, and Thinkers introduces listeners to the fascinating people and important ideas at the heart of American civil society. We speak with philanthropists, nonprofit leaders, social entrepreneurs, historians, journalists, and anyone else who will help us understand contemporary civil society's achievements and failures. We also sprinkle in practical advice for nonprofit leaders and fundraisers. My name is Jeremy Beer, and thanks for joining us. All right. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Givers, Doers, and Thinkers. I am speaking to you from downtown Phoenix, rather quiet these days, and we're honored to have with us today Garrett Johnson. Uh, Garrett's the innovative leader of a really innovative nonprofit organization, the Lincoln Network, that is itself concerned with, you guessed it, innovation, and especially the intersection of technology and liberty, which also means the intersection of the tech industry and government. Needless to say, this is a really interesting area to be working in and to be thinking about right now. Uh, We'll talk to Garrett about the challenges of leading a nonprofit in the current environment, while also delving into the substance of what Lincoln works on. So without further ado, welcome, Garrett, to Givers, Doers, and Thinkers. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's uh, it's an honor. You uh, have told me you're, you're coming to us from San Jose today. That's right, Jeremy. I am enjoying beautiful weather and high taxes and everything else that comes with living in California. Well, I'm enjoying really, really hot weather and only moderate taxes and everything else that comes with living in Arizona. So right. right. <laughs> there are very different places. There's a there's good interchange between California and Arizona. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hey, um, so you're the as we as I said in the intro, you're the co-founder and the ED of the Lincoln Network. And I'm I'm just gonna read this and, and ask you to elaborate and tell me what it means. Um you guys say that you believe that when technology meets and supports the cause of liberty, our society wins and our future becomes brighter. So tell me, uh, not only lap, unpack that a little bit, but tell me what made you launch Lincoln or, or what problem was it that you saw out there that you wanted to attack? Yeah, Jeremy, you know, as with a lot of ideas, I was trying to scratch my own itch. I was trying to solve a problem that I, I was facing. So my background is in in public policy and in, uh, in uh, international relations. I was working in the U.S. Senate uh, in Washington D.C. at the time on the Foreign Relations Committee. Um, this was in uh, 2011, uh, and I was loving my job and and uh, working for a great man uh, at the time, Senator Richard Lugar, uh, who was uh, a great long senator, uh, longstanding senator from Indiana. Yeah, my home state. Yeah, yeah. I mean, fantastic guy, uh, a real you know free market guy. And so I was working for him, uh, loving my job. Uh, but I started to tinker on the side uh, with my best friend uh, from grad school, who's a PhD in, in computer science. And so um, we uh, we started to tinker on this uh, on this company on this idea. We applied to this uh, program called Y Combinator. Uh, which sort of like uh, a boot camp, sort of the best boot camp for startups in the world, uh, and it's based in uh, in Mountain View, California, which is uh, which is in the Bay Area. And so, in order to participate uh, in in YC, if you get selected, you have to move to Mountain View. 
And so uh, we were fortunate uh, to get uh, to get selected to participate. Uh, and uh, and so I moved from my comfort zone of working in public policy and in government. And I moved out to the Bay Area where I had no professional connections, no you know personal connections. I'd never worked in tech. No background in entrepreneurship. Uh, so uh, I was a bit of a fish out of water. And I was still very much interested in what was going on uh, in public policy in Washington, D.C. So I wanted to interact with other people who cared about that as well, who you know worked in the tech industry, who cared about civic engagement and who generally saw the world through a free market lens. And, uh, and when I moved out here, there was nothing that I could plug into, no, nothing like that. Uh, this was the early days of Airbnb and Uber. You know, Facebook was just emerging from being a campus-only platform to opening itself up to the larger U.S. market. So, uh, so my uh, friend who you know, Aaron Jen, who's now my co-founder, he and I just started to organize happy hours uh, to, to target that community. Uh, and uh, and Lincoln, over the past few years, has grown from happy hours to the organization that we have now. Did you find, uh, was there a lot of interest? I mean, um, are people in Silicon Valley concerned about civil society and civic engagement and and, uh, and uh, individual liberty like, like you guys are? Yeah. So it depends on who you ask, Jeremy. That That's a question that a lot of people are trying to unpack and have been for a number of years. So Silicon Valley has its roots. You know, the name Silicon Valley uh, is a byproduct of the, uh, you know, silicon chips, the, you know, semiconductors uh, that uh, that made California the technology, the innovation capital uh, of the world going back to, you know, Fairchild and, and you know, the, the old companies, Hewlett, Intel, uh, that, that really put this area on the map. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, the, the, uh, the impetus that predates those early companies, those early innovators, is the U.S. government, the Department of Defense, uh, that uh, invested in basic research and development, putting government dollars to work, uh, to make sure that the U.S. military had the you know best technology uh, was on the cutting edge of of anything that would give our warfighters uh, a better a better advantage uh, over our adversaries going back to you know the world wars, and so uh, you know you have this legacy of government and the private sector and academia like Stanford and Berkeley and Santa Clara University working working together to create something really incredible. So so there's this history, there's this legacy of Silicon Valley working with the government, partnering with the government in various ways to build incredible institutions, incredible technology to build a future that we all enjoy now. So so there's that legacy and that that continues uh, of course, you know, depending on the administration and sort of the temperature of the country that ebbs and flows. So, you know, during, you know, the Bush administration, during uh, the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, there was, you know, this this turn inward uh, where where tech, you know, was very much just focused on uh, on, you know, building technology and, and very insular. Uh, and then when Obama uh, came to office in, in 2008, uh, you know, he was a cool president that all the nerds wanted to hang out with. Uh, and, you know, he was a Democrat. And so, you know, it was 
uh, okay to sort of virtue signal and uh, and support and embrace him. And uh, and so there was this resurgence of interest in the tech industry engaging uh, in uh, in the civic space, but not only at the federal level, not just with the president, but you 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 saw this emergence of technology at the peer to peer level, uh, where Uber and Airbnb. Uh, were were impacting cities and counties and states in in a way that had never been done before. Sort of this social layer of technology really wasn't as robust, didn't really exist uh, until, uh, you know, sort of the end of the George W. Bush administration going into Obama's administration. And so you've seen this resurgence of interest and, uh, and uh, you know, tech professionals looking to try and bring their expertise uh, into government. So we really tapped into that. Uh, and, and Lincoln is building this community of technology professionals who want to use their skill sets to advance liberty and these timeless ideas that we all believe in, trying to make sure they are relevant in the 21st century. Yeah, that can cut. Um, it strikes me that this could cut both ways, right? From from the perspective of a robust and free, independent civil society, um, having uh, leaders in tech collaborating with leaders in government could could be a good thing or it could be a bad thing, right? Uh, right. I mean, you can speed up a lot of bad, stupid ideas uh, with uh, with technology, um, and you know, government. It's a feature, not a bug, as we would say in tech. You know, government moving slow uh, is by design. Uh, so you know, you don't want to speed up. You know, really stupid decisions uh, too much. Um, but but you know, I think that there is this reality that most Americans have very tactile, very personal reality that hey, if I can have really seamless, great experiences with Amazon or Walmart or any other, you know, app that's out there. If, if I can have a really pleasant experience using their technology, why is government so bad? Like during, during one of the uh, largest health and economic crisis in the country, why are government websites crashing and failing? Uh, and not not enabling people to get unemployment checks and things like that. Like, you know, Americans are, are now expecting better technology, better services from government. And unfortunately, you know, as we've seen in just the past few months, uh, government has been tested and found wanting. Well, we'll come back to this, I think, because uh, obviously you're right about that. And it is something that's extraordinarily frustrating, I think, for the average citizen. Uh, but I want to go back. So let's go. Uh, you can so, you can hear it just a little bit in your voice that you were raised uh, in the South. I think you're from Florida originally. Is that correct? That's right. Uh, Florida native. Talk, talk to me about your personal journey growing up in Florida. What what sort of civil society you may have encountered there? And then and then how you got to be working on the uh, staff of Indiana's senior senator? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, people ask me, I'm, I'm a black guy, uh, which your readers or your listeners can't tell because they can't see me. Um, and so, you know, as a black guy working in the, you know, liberty movement, people often ask that question, like, what what got you into this space? And um, and it was interesting. Um, you know, uh, there was a, a profile on Senator Scott, Tim Scott of South Carolina uh, yesterday, who's the only black Republican uh, in the Senate, uh, only one of two black Republicans in Congress. Will Hurd is the other one. And he's he's retiring so, uh, so, you know, Tim Scott 
answer this question in an article yesterday when he was talking about his Justice Act to address the moment that we're in uh, the debate around uh, police reform. And um, and, you know, he said that he believes in divine intervention. He believes that he was born to be a, a black man who has a as he as he described it, a conservative construct, uh, a free market liberty worldview. And, and I, I feel I feel the same way. And in some ways, to some extent, uh, you know, my parents were not political, are not political, uh, you know, never worked on a campaign, never made a, a contribution to a candidate. Uh, but, you know, they believed strongly and still do uh, in bottom up change that in their community. Uh, it's not the government uh, it's not some bureaucrat that's going to make sure their community is safe, uh, that that youth are provided with good examples to aspire to. It's it's their job to be that light, to be that example. And that's inspired by, you know, long traditions of civic engagement in my family. That's inspired by, uh, you know, a, 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 a Judeo-Christian sort of ethos of belief. Uh, that, that my parents uh, always instilled uh, in, in myself and my siblings. And so I just grew up where I grew up in a, you know, all black neighborhood, low income community in, uh, in Belmont Heights, which is an area in Tampa. And my parents were the only married couple in the community. Uh, you know, my my house was the hub for all of the other amazing kids in uh, in my community and, and parents. Uh, my my dad and mom they they met on the track team at a university in Florida, a uh, all black school uh, called Florida Agricultural Mechanical University, FAMU, and um, and so you know they had a youth track ministry as they call it, a youth track team, where you know this this was an environment, a safe space in the you know parlance of of the day, a safe space where kids could come and learn really important transferable skills for the rest of their lives of, of hard work uh, and discipline uh, and, and being part of a, of a team. Uh, you know, oftentimes the, the trips that we would take around the state to various competitions was the first time many of, you know, these kids that I grew up with, my friends who are now family, it was, this was their first time leaving the city being exposed to a larger state, a larger world that they may not have been exposed to, to otherwise. So I, I grew up with my, my parents being the change that, that they wanted to see, you know, being, being the positive force that the community needed. Uh, and, uh, and so, you know, that, that idea of having a bottom up approach, Looking to you know community civic engagement as a solution, not a top-down, heavy-handed approach, uh, instilled in me uh, from from the earliest days. And you know, then I went to Florida State for undergrad. I worked uh, as an intern. I didn't even know who the governor was because, as I mentioned, didn't grow up in a political family. But I knew I wanted to work in in you know in the civic space and in the, in the in the government space. And at the time, the the governor was Jet Bush, uh, who was an amazing governor. Uh, you know, did a lot for the state, especially around education reform, which he still very much focuses on. Garrett, how can so what the the experience you describe 
about your parents and their role in the community is, is really, it's exactly what we're talking about when we talk about civil society. It seems to me that sort of bottom up, be the change you seek approach, uh, and, you know, people coming together to solve uh, local problems or address them anyways, the best they can. I don't know if you have an answer to this question I'm about to ask you, but it seems to me an interesting question. How, if, if at all, can tech encourage that kind of approach to um, problem solving or problem addressing, if we want to put it that way, uh, rather than a top-down, bureaucratic, one-size-fits-all, more ideological and abstract approach? Yeah, I, I think the short answer, Jeremy, is that it's it's doing it. Tech, tech has provided, has enabled uh, an unparalleled amount of information flow. You know, uh, the, the problem throughout history uh, that has separated, you know, the people of means and influence from those uh, who were disadvantaged uh, or, you know, often on the short end of the stick was information asymmetry, right? Um, you know, the, the people of influence and means, they had access to opportunities, to information, uh, to intelligence that everyone else was cut out from, from accessing. And so, you know, they were able to take advantage of that uh, uh, and, uh, and, do, and, and do, you know, uh, very positive things with it. Technology has, has chipped away at that information asymmetry and allow people to both consume and also distribute information in, in unprecedented ways. Uh, and I think that's neutral. That's neither positive nor negative. Um, and so, um, you know, the, the Charles Koch Foundation just came out with uh, some, some polling yesterday that was interesting, asking the question, trying to get a sense of how Americans think about the role of technology uh, in this current moment of, of protest and demonstrations and, and lots of questioning uh, going on in our society. And overwhelmingly, Americans see technology as a positive enabler. Uh, for this moment uh, of people talking about police reform, people talking about economic inequalities, people talking about historical racial issues uh, in our country. And, uh, and so uh, I see the tech industry uh, and, and technology generally as being uh, a tremendous value add uh, to chipping away at inf- information asymmetry uh, allowing people at every strata of society to be able to engage and solve problems for themselves and to educate themselves and to empower themselves. Garrett, what did you learn about civil society, American civil society, maybe to say America in particular, while working on the U.S. Senate Foreign Relations Committee? I, I would imagine that you had the opportunity to draw some comparisons in your own mind, if not, you know, formally with the sorts of uh, uh, nations that you were dealing with on that committee? Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was an incredible experience. And again, it goes back to uh, great leadership. Senator Luger um, uh, was a, uh, was a, a person who believed in um, local action. You know, his, his first role was on the school board of Indianapolis before he became mayor uh, and then Senator. Uh, uh, for Indiana for almost 40 years. Uh, and, um, and, you know, he set a tone 
uh, that uh, that allow for a real positive work to be done on the committee in a bipartisan way. You know, fortunately, I left in 2000, late 2011, uh, before, you know, the Titanic started to to sink and everything went south <laughs> in the Senate and it became a, a partisan cesspool. Uh, but, uh, you know, Luger set a, a fantastic tone. And, uh, and so I, I got to travel to uh, places where we were spending a lot of money uh, is is the job of the formulations committee is to oversee all of the uh, all of the non-military money that the U.S. deploys around the world through the State Department, through USAID and, and other government entities. So I traveled to Afghanistan, to Pakistan, to India, to Haiti after the earthquake. I was an election observer there and, and you know, and helped to oversee lots of the activity that was going on there. Uh, and, you know, for, for everyone who's, you know, tossing out accusations that, you know, uh, America is, is such a, a horrible place to live. And, you know, we haven't made any progress. And, uh, and you know, people who look like me and who grew up in my neighborhood, uh, you know, are, are you know, uh, in, in such a, a horrible, uh, 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 you know, position. I, I challenge them to go to a place like Haiti. And, and, and move there or go to other places that I've traveled to and in other parts of Africa or Asia uh, and, and go live there. America uh, is such an amazing place. We have our flaws. We have our issues. No, no question about that. Uh, but but America uh, and and the uh, and the civil society, the the infrastructure uh, um, that that ma- the majority of which is private actors in, in civil society, in the private sector, uh, is, is such a vibrant country, such an envi- a vibrant place to live. And so having the opportunity to travel as I did, that stands out to me as, as an, an important lesson to take away. Um, you know, and, and another important lesson uh, to take away uh, is the, the important role that technology plays in places like uh, India uh, or, or Haiti. Um, you know, these places have, you know, uh, brilliant people uh, and in a, their own ways, they have strong civic uh, and, uh, and sort of philanthropic um, um, uh, infrastructure. Uh, but, you know, they're, they're just challenged by being sort of a few orders of magnitude uh, smaller economies. Uh, in the case of in, uh, in the case of India, not not as much. They, they have a you know large and, and growing economy, but Haiti for sure, by orders of magnitude, much much smaller. So they just have less resources to to work with, uh, and so you know they they are you know really rich in, in aspirations and and, and and visions for their country, but they're just sort of constrained by by limited resources, um, and and so in, in that instance, technology can even play a larger role. And helping these countries to leapfrog um, using technology, leapfrog some of the public policy and, and social issues that they have. So, for example, you know, when I traveled there in, in 2010, 2011, they were using cell phone technology in transformational ways that hadn't really been thought about here in the U.S., using it for telemedicine, you know, a decade ago for Telebanking a decade ago, uh, for you know communicating with farmers and providing them with uh, you know uh, agricultural information that helped them to be more productive, you know a decade ago, 
you know, the, these are all technologies that are, are just sort of getting up to speed in the U.S. Uh, that have been critical uh, life-saving uh, in many respects and, and, and you know, different uh, places around the, uh, around the world. So, um, you know, really, really vibrant uh, uh, communities and, and, and civil societies that, you know, with, with, you know, more resources, again, not top down, but bottom up, uh, you know, could solve so many of their own problems. We're going to be right back with Garrett Johnson. I'm going to talk to him about what it's uh, some of the challenges of leading a nonprofit like this. To our interview, uh, but in the middle of these things, we do these practicalities, uh, little, little talks with colleagues of mine here at American Philanthropic or with people even outside the firm on practical things that nonprofit uh, leaders, fundraisers might want to know that may or may not be helpful. And I am here with Devin Ironside. He, first of all, hello, Devin. Hello. Uh, he, Devin is our director of data services. Here at American Philanthropic is also a certified Salesforce administrator, which means that we all just called him our Salesforce guru, right? Yep. And are you actually a guru? Would you uh, think you have guru status? Yet? I have been called a wizard. I've wizard? been called a lot of uh, very gracious things. All right. All right. So uh, databases, that's a lot of fun. And uh, But people, one thing we encounter a lot with our clients is that their data isn't always in great shape, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so tell us, tell us what you find. What are the, what are people screwing up out there with their databases that if they, if they got them fixed, they'd be in much better place to, um, grow the organizations. Yeah. Many times with databases, what needs to be fixed, I think, uh, the first thing that comes to mind is honestly the mindset. Um, I think databases for a lot of nonprofits are not a priority. They don't think of it as something they need to invest in. They don't think of it as something that, um, requires continual improvement, that it's an iterative process. They just kind of want to throw everything into an archive somewhere and just be done with it. And so I think the first thing I kind of notice is that the mindset uh, really needs to change. Whenever clients come to me, I try to really tell them, look, a database needs to be something you actually um, focus on, invest in. Uh, I think COVID-19 here recently completely proved uh, our philosophy on this in that when suddenly the emergencies came and people needed answers right away, if the database was not something that was accessible, if it was not something where data had been put in, if people were uh, following not, not following best practices with it, then uh, they ran into a lot of issues and it could have been avoided beforehand. My sense is that most nonprofit leaders, CEOs, presidents, don't think about the database until something goes wrong. Yep. So they're not including the data person in their leadership meetings. They don't have on the agenda on a monthly or quarterly basis. How are we doing with the database? You, am I right about this? Well, you're exactly right. And the funny thing is, uh, that's actually the second thing I was going to bring up is that yeah. many times in an organization, there's a lack of ownership, uh, whether that's from the top and they don't give it to somebody or just nobody has claimed it, especially in small organizations. Your database has to have an owner. There has to be a shepherd for that for that database. Um, I think people think of a database as a very static, um, you know, concrete sort of thing. And a database is absolutely a living organism. It will get bad. Is it a, gar- uh, a garden? It'll yeah. grow weeds. If you do not clean it up, if you not dedupe your data, if you don't standardize your addresses, that sort of stuff, it needs somebody to take ownership. We take we talk a lot about the problem of siloing uh, with our clients between fundraising and program. 
off into the silos we're trying to break down. But this is another example of siloing, right? Yeah. Where there's no – I guess nobody has ownership. But even if somebody does have ownership, they're not sort of in continual communication with the rest of the organization. Yep. They're either not in communication or that person hasn't been empowered with the right tools to yeah. be able to get the answers to either the program staff or the development staff. And so you can ask for you know certain data or certain reports you want, but if that person also just doesn't have the right tools or that person doesn't exist in the organization, then, then nobody knows who to go to. Or maybe that person exists, and then because of the high churn we experience in nonprofits, especially in development departments, you know, 18 months mm-hmm. or so, the one person who knew how to run something, they're gone. And suddenly that database just kind of flies off into you know the nether and nobody knows what's going on. It's crazy because think about, uh, can you imagine a for-profit business of any seriousness or size that didn't pay attention to its customer database? Yeah, no, it'd be it'd be incredibly uh, foolhardy. And the fact is, like, we still see the importance when it comes to accounting. Most people like don't mess with the accountants. They understand you've got to you've got to get your dots and zeros, right. you know, ones and zeros, your your dots uh, on your eyes and T's crossed. But when it comes to the development database, it's just not seen as a priority. Many times uh, nonprofits decide, well, we, you know, the CEO, this happens mostly with the CEOs and the presidents. It keeps it in their head. It's all trapped on some spreadsheet yeah. somewhere. It's not cloud-based. It's not accessible. Um, there's a lot of problems that are caused by that. Okay, those are two good things. You got another one for us? I do have another one. Probably if I had to leave you with something, um, the most important thing, just people kind of many times say, well, that's great databases. You know, we want to have a good database, but where do we start? How do we know if our database is actually good or if it's actually not, not good for us? Um, and your database is really simple, but your database has to function has uh, serve two primary functions. Um, it needs to be able to have data put in it, and it needs to have data get out of it. Yeah. Um, that seems simple, but if you're not putting data in in an effective way, categorizing your donors, putting uh, the types of those accounts that are in there, um, you're just kind of dumping all of your laundry into your drawers and not doing any sort of sorting. It makes it really difficult to then pull that data out of it. Right. You have to be able to pull it out efficiently. You need to be able to run reports where you can see a mailing list of your donors last year who gave $100 or more in a particular state and, and categorize them by the different tiers they gave or something like that. You need to be able to have that data. Right. So you need to be able to, it has to serve those two functions. Data goes in, data comes out. And if it doesn't do that for your organization, it's good. Yeah, report, I like that image. So reports are like drawers. You need to, yeah. you need to have a drawer that has the right stuff in it, yeah. not, not any of the wrong stuff, and you yeah. need to know Right. Yeah, you have to have it set up. And people come to us all the time uh, with loads of questions about their reports, and it can take incredible amounts of time for staff to be pulling reports, you know, days at a time. Sometimes it shouldn't be that case. That that's wrong. Normally, people at the top don't experience that. It's yeah. the grunts at the bottom that have to spend those right. days doing it, and they are the ones that come to be in tears. But the people at the top don't necessarily appreciate the work that goes in there. Thank you, Devin. Now go back to your guru. Yeah, that's right. My pleasure. We are back with Garrett Johnson, co-founder and executive director of the Lincoln Network. Um, all right, Garrett, I'm going to I'm going to switch gears here a little bit and talk to you about the job, the, the job of being a nonprofit leader uh, in uh, today's world. I don't mean just today's world as it's come to be in the last three months, but just sort of in the 21st century, the third decade now, the 21st century. Um, what's been your biggest challenge in you know, in starting and leading? And this relatively new nonprofit, also one that's maybe not as easy for people to understand as helping puppies is, for instance. Um, what would you say? Yeah, I just want to be clear. We like puppies here as well. So Yeah, no, I'm, I'm pro-puppy as well. Yeah. 
Let's do be clear about that. And I meant no disrespect to puppies. Understood. Understood. No letters, please. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, there is a, there is a big disconnect uh, between the tech industry and arguably the rest of the country. We, we, Jeremy, we see that playing out in, in so many different ways. So it, it sometimes is challenging helping to helping to explain to uh, the the DC crowd that's you know not not tech oriented, especially when we first were getting started in, in like 20, 2013, 2014, who who are not you know digital natives who who were not focused on the tech industry at that time, helping them to understand what we were seeing, the opportunity that we were trying to. Uh, take advantage of uh, was difficult. You know, as you know, Jeremy, with American Philanthropic, the the donor class uh, in the liberty movement is, uh, you know, they're seasoned to to be, you know, to be charitable. It's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, trying to explain all of the various technologies and business models and platforms uh, to, you know, rooms that were filled with people in their 60s and more often in their 70s and 80s, you know, it was it was speaking a different language oftentimes. Uh, and so trying to translate, we, we think of, of this and it's sort of a techie f- phrase, but I'll use it. We, we see ourselves as trying to be a translation layer between the tech industry and the liberty movement and and policymakers uh, who are you know shaping fundamentally uh, the the playing field that. Uh, you know, these companies and that our economy is, is built on. And so that has been our biggest challenge is, is trying to communicate. And, it, and it, it's not unique to us. I mean, it's a challenge of, of most organizations is trying to communicate the value of what you're doing in clear, simple, understandable uh, uh, terms. And so, you know, that's something that we continue to focus on, that we continue to struggle with because, and, and then also we, we are, we're communicating to, to two very different audiences. We are tailoring a message that has to appeal to a very tech oriented audience. And, and that message, as I just described, is going to be very different than the audience that we see, you know, in the Liberty Movement or in the, uh, in, in sort of DC. So, uh, so that's probably been our, our biggest, our biggest challenge. Fortunately, we we the timing as as you know often people say uh, you know a lot of life is about timing it's you know sort of the serendipity the luck of, of timing and so fortunately we we started this at a time where there's this collision there's this you know sort of clash between these two worlds and it has only gotten you know more exaggerated. Uh, you know, as we have, uh, you know, moved from, you know, uh, the early uh, uh, 2010s to, to where we are now over the past decade. Uh, and so there's been a growing demand, uh, you know, a growing tension, growing angst and concern about how these two worlds will interact. And so there's been a, a lot of interest, a lot of demand in what we do and understanding what value we can add. Uh, so fortunately, uh, you know, we we benefited from a, from a, a just you know right timing and, and a lot of luck in, in that regard. Um, but you know, communicating what we do, uh, and that is directly connected to finding the right people. So, like with any other organization, people are policy. You know, finding really incredibly talented people and then empowering them to be innovative, be entrepreneurial, is is something that you know would all I would also 
um, uh, sort of place as as you know another the, the the other big challenge that we face as an organization. That's something you do really well, I would say. Just just looking at it from the outside, and maybe you can talk about that. I mean, um, that because that's a nonprofit leadership. That's just a leadership um, challenge uh, that's encountered everywhere uh, by any, no matter what sort of organization you might be leading. Um, talking about how you um, yeah empower people to be entrepreneurial without you know. I think most leaders would say, oh, well, if I do that, that sounds great. But then I lay awake at night wondering about what they're going to screw up because I'm not, you know, looking over their shoulder. Uh, so how do you do that? Yeah. Um, you know, I think there has been this significant cultural change, uh, you know, driven by by uh, the tech industry uh, and some of the innovative methodologies and and models that they have they have embraced that has now seeped into other industries and 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 including you know the government and and uh, and civic space uh, where we we want to empower people to be uh, more autonomous to to have ownership you know a, a model an important model an incentive model uh, of the tech industry is not just paying people a paycheck to to show up to work from nine to five you know to clock in and clock out but to give them equity in what you're building so that incentives are aligned so that the the more value they add uh, up front, you know, the, the bigger, uh, you know, the, the bigger slice of the pie they get, uh, you know, on the back end. And so, you know, taking that ethos, taking that approach, finding people who, who care about uh, autonomy, who, who care about, uh, risk taking, and and of course, you know our our structure as an organization and, and what we're focused on, uh, I think, is naturally biased towards people who are more uh, who who, are, who embrace risk more, and and who want to you know pursue sort of innovative approaches, models, and and methodologies. So I think we we sort of have some advantages baked in uh, because of the issue area that we focus on, but any organization. Um, whether it be for-profit or non-profit, has to address that, that fundamental issue of how do we make sure that there is clear alignment of incentives because that is going to, to lead to the, to the best outcome. And so, uh, and so, you know, we, we focused on that, tried to prioritize that. You know, it's challenging because, you know, we're a non-profit, so, you know, there's no, yeah. there's no equity. Asking, how do you do that in a non-profit environment? How do you, how do you give equity and you know, a stake, so to speak. Yeah. So that's where the, the higher risk tolerance is needed because, you know, equity, equity, you know, is a form of ownership. It is ownership and sort of whatever you're building. So, you know, in exchange for equity, you know, you have to provide other incentives like autonomy and ownership. Mm. So, you know, being a servant leader, uh, the, 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 the team, the leadership team, has to be willing to to let go to to be somewhat detached uh, in order to provide people that sense of ownership and autonomy that can only come either through owning an actual piece of the company uh, or through owning the uh, a piece of the leadership in the, in the decision making power. And so you have to right. be willing to give up ideally a little bit of both of them if you can. In our case, we don't have any equity to give, so we have to be willing to give up some decision-making, some, some control and trust our team uh, that we've hired really smart, capable people who will make really good decisions. Well, no, there's a really interesting principle that you've just articulated there, I think. Um, 
that uh, it, because you can't give real equity stakes in the nonprofit space, you have to give more autonomy and more decision-making power. That that That's an interesting way of looking at it. I had not thought of it that way. Yeah, I think I think that's right because, you know, our as we, we you know, move into uh, this 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 new generation of of people who are uh, in the workforce, uh, you know, sort of early career, mid career. We, we see that more and more uh, people who are under 40 are not just looking for the bottom line of, you know, how much. How much salary am I getting? How many you know days of vacation am I allotted? They are looking for something that is mission aligned. They they care about making a, a difference, uh, you know, impacting in a positive way, um, you know, their society, their 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 community, their cause, uh, you know, however it breaks down. And so, uh, and so you you. In order to attract attract the, the best people, uh, leaders now have to think about how do we make sure that we're hiring people who care about the mission, who care about the vision, uh, and and then give them that ownership uh, that will keep them invested uh, and and make this something that that they feel fundamentally connected to beyond just you know, clocking in and, and clocking out because, you know, more and more people are, are looking for something that, you know, takes care of the bottom line, bottom line for them and their families, but also gives them a sense of meaning and connection to something larger. Garrett, I'm going to let you go here in, a, in a, just a few minutes. So I want to, I'm going to take it back to the, the substance of what Lincoln works on. And I'm going to, I'm going to play devil's advocate just a little bit. I'm going to, I'm going to, just push you on this. I think it's really interesting right now. And you, you've been circling around this topic. So I'll give you a chance to really hit it directly. Okay. You, uh, um, you, you moderated a debate recently that I think uh, was essentially on this topic about how big tech uh, may have a policy. Um, well, have may have a political bias. Um, uh, and others would say that it's um, unintentionally perhaps uh, our sort of contemporary technologies are sort of producing a monoculture when it comes to points of view, um, uh, that it's not uh, actually sustaining the sort of pluralism that we had hoped that uh, these new technologies would. Um, and it's kind of hectoring and maybe even a little bit, you know, tyrannical at times. Um, what's, give me your pushback on that <laughs> you know i assume you have pushback on that or do you, is there any truth to that at all yeah jeremy so so this is a this is a, a complicated subject um you know because it it intertwines you know core core beliefs of our body politic uh, uh but then also sort of ideological uh understandings of you know what the right role of, of government is uh, from our free market perspective. So, you know, fundamentally, you know, First Amendment rights, freedom of speech, you know, that's core to to our American values. So, you know, whether you're on the right or on the left, you know, people generally buy into that to that notion that the First Amendment is an amazing thing. It, it's something very unique uh, uh, to the U.S. And, and that's part of the struggle that these tech companies 
uh, are are continuing to grapple with is that they are they are companies that were founded in America, um, and that and, and those values somewhat shape uh, the the company culture at least initially. And so that First Amendment idea of freedom of speech shapes the company culture, uh, but they're also global brands. Uh, and, you know, there is no First Amendment in Germany or France. Um, and, and so and so how, how do you balance, you know, the American understanding of speech and the normative aspects of our understanding of speech uh, uh, versus, you know, how other uh, other countries are grappling with with understandings of how to regulate uh, or control speech. So there's that higher conversation that's going on. Uh, And and then there is sort of the ideological lens of, as, you know, free market people, we've generally taken the approach that, you know, the government should not be in the business of telling private sector companies what to do, how to run their business. You know, freedom of association. If, if you, know, you don't like what a company is doing, well, you know, take your business somewhere else uh, and let the market dictate and decide, uh, you know, who wins and who loses based on, uh, you know, the, the product that they offer, the service that they offer uh, and, and how the market responds to it. Uh, and so in, and so there, there's a, a tension uh, here uh, for for free market people. Uh, you know, they they see the need for. Uh, you know, as much of a level playing field when it comes to speech, whether it be political speech or other types of speech, having a level playing field. Uh, and, you know, whether we like it or not, um, you know, the reality is, is that, you know, Facebook and Twitter, you know, they are the, the you know, public squares of, of the 21st century. Uh, and, uh, and so, you know, that, that comes with a lot of, uh, of challenges and, and complexity. But they're also private companies. And so, and so, what do you what do you do uh, with with this uh, challenging uh, circumstances, this, this challenging situation? And, and I don't think that we have an easy answer, uh, right? If, yeah. if we did, you know, the problem would have been addressed a long time ago. Yeah, you're, I mean, you're right that either way you go, you're uh, inviting um, some kind of infringement on what we believe to be a pretty fundamental right, whether it's a free speech or freedom of association or, um, or, uh, yeah, yeah what have you. Moral, there are a lot, there's a lot of moral hazard there, uh, you yeah. have to be, be careful with because you, you don't want to make a decision that then blows up in your face. So for example, if you go the first amendment route that, you know, these platforms have to have to abide by the first amendment. Well, you know, Jeremy, the 80%, of the internet is like porn and human depravity that no one wants to, to expose themselves or their families to. So if you go strictly by the first amendment, then, you know, none of us would want to interact on the internet because it is, it is a cesspool of human depravity. Uh, if you, if you go down the, the route of, of, you know, a heavy handed government approach regulating the tech industry, that is a very slippery slope and, and it, doesn't end, you know, today, you know, the tech industry is in the crosshairs of the government tomorrow. Who knows what industry it is? Yeah, no, that's right. Um, although, yeah, I think, uh, the internet is a cesspool of human depravity is the key quote to take away from our, our, uh, interview here. I think Garrett, that's good. That's a good, <laughs> that's a good one. Um, sadly true, but also sadly something that may not be easy to do anything about. All right, let me 
So one more question before we go. What's one thing, one thing we could do that maybe or the Lincoln Network is working on or you just think the tech industry could do to strengthen uh, American civil society? Yeah, so we are working on uh, a project of, of bringing uh, a, a technology into the market, uh, providing it to, to parents in the U.S. that will, will make the discovery of educational options, of, of, of you know, uh, education choice options easier for them to, to, uh, to discover, to, to find. So the, the name of the, uh, of the technology is called Schoola Hoop. Uh, and, um, and, you know, education is, is the great, great equalizer. Uh, if, if we can, you know, get education right, uh, um, then we will solve a lot of our social and economic problems. Uh, and, uh, you know, my colleague Ian Patterson, who is a great, uh, a great technology mind, his team is leading, uh, a, a project in partnership with the Miles Foundation, uh, on, on helping parents to more easily discover options, either private or charter or homeschooling or co-ops. And, you know, in the, in this moment that we're in with COVID that has never been more important, um, you know, uh, empowering parents to understand their options um, on, you know, across a number of factors that influence it, uh, influence it, that that's commute time. That's, you know, that's, you know, the environment that they want, for their for their kids, as it relates to diversity, uh, you know, to the to the curriculum. So, you know, the technology that we're building in the education choice space, I think, is so important now more than ever. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we we would love people to check it out to give us feedback on that. No, I think you're right. Uh, it's sort of the empowered parents uh, and, and uh, overcoming information. Um, not just the information asymmetry, but just sort of information deserts, so to speak, uh, is crucial to civil society. So that's um, that sounds great. Well, Garrett Johnson, thank you so much for being with us today. You can find Garrett and the Lincoln Network at lincolnpolicy.org. Uh, they do great work and really appreciate your being with us. Yeah, thank you, Jeremy, for having me. <laughs>